And this was something that was very eye-opening to me in terms of realizing the power of representation is that I very much whitewashed my own family newspaper. Kids absorb a lot. They're kind of famous for it. We've all talked about the little sponges soaking up language and facts about dinosaurs and occasionally social graces. But some of the messages kids absorb are too subtle for them to label. And when they're harmful, those can be the hardest to root out. Henna Khan grew up feeling that her heritage and her immigrant family's experience simply weren't important, that the things that made her different from her white suburban peers were better left, well, ignored. And she would internalize that message for years to come. But then, in a poetic moment, she opened a book to read and saw her own mother reflected in its pages. And she realized what she'd been missing out on. Today, she's a prolific author who has made it her mission to showcase families like her own, both in their differences and in their commonalities. Hopefully anybody can get to know a Pakistani American family, maybe, you know, witness some Muslim traditions and, but yet feel included too, the way I did in all the books I read as a kid. Henna is a Pakistani American writer known for the groundbreaking and award-winning Amina's Voice, as well as its sequel, Amina's Song. Her titles also include the Zara's Rules series, More to the Story, and the beloved picture book, Golden Domes and Silver Lanterns, A Muslim Book of Colors, among many more. In this episode, she'll tell us about the sense of invisibility that she felt as a young reader, the long journey to having faith in herself and her perspective, and she'll also explain how, in her unconscious search for books with Muslim immigrant families like her own, she somehow latched onto a book about Christian white sisters in the 1800s. You probably already know the one. My name is Jordan Lloyd Bookie, and this is The Reading Culture, a show where we speak with authors and illustrators about the ways to build a stronger culture of reading in our communities. We dive into their personal experiences, their inspirations, and why their stories and ideas motivate kids to read more. Make sure to check us out on Instagram for giveaways at The Reading Culture Pod, and you can also subscribe to my newsletter at thereadingculturepod.com forward slash newsletter. All right, on to the show. Why don't we talk a little bit just about your early childhood and what, what life was like in Rockville? Yeah. You know, I grew up the child of immigrants from Pakistan. My father was one of the very early Pakistanis who moved here. So he came in 1959 and then went back and married my mom. And I was born and raised here in Maryland and grew up in the same neighborhood, the same house for my entire childhood and young adulthood. Um, it's where my mother still lives now. So I used to walk to my local elementary school and it was a really lovely neighborhood because we had a lot of diverse neighbors. And in fact, my new chapter book series, early middle grade series, Zara's Rules, is, is based a lot on my neighborhood. But um, I went to, yeah, my local public school and, you know, I had a pretty uneventful childhood, just sort of balancing the normal challenges of being raised by immigrants and trying to figure out where I fit in and and having you know, the home life versus school life and private life versus public life. But now people ask me and kids ask me a lot of times when I do school visits if, if I was bullied as a child or what it was like for me growing up. And I tell them all the time that I didn't thankfully feel bullied or unwelcome in any way. But I think what I did experience was feeling a bit invisible. 
And not only because of books, because I didn't realize I wasn't in books until much later. But I think people just didn't know anything about where my family was from. If I mentioned Pakistan, like people, teachers, administrators, kids, everybody was like, where is that? A lot of times they hadn't heard the word Muslim, didn't know what that referred to when I was missing school because of a like the Eid holiday. My parents would sign, I would write a note actually and make my parents sign it. And I wouldn't even call it Eid because I just assumed nobody, nobody knew what that was. So I would just say, please excuse Hannah for her religious holiday. That's what I referred to it as. You know, I so desperately wanted to fit in, but then at the same time, you know, had this other side of me that I really didn't feel was very understood. And at the same time, I was consuming the same media, TV, entertainment as everyone else. Like I was very familiar with Christmas and Hanukkah and all the other traditions and could carol like like anybody. <laughs> I would go caroling <laughs> with my yeah. friends in the neighborhood. And <laughs> so, I, you know, there was a sense of like, I sort of can participate in and understand other people's traditions and experience, but nobody really knows mine. Yeah. But you said you felt invisible is the word that you used. And that, how did that like come out? It wasn't like today where you see kids really proud of their heritage or or encouraged to be. Maybe they still aren't, actually. I know some kids probably aren't. But um, it's, you know, multicultural day or, you know, bring your culture to school day or, you know, whatever. That type of thing just didn't happen then. And it wasn't so much that I felt like people were being dismissive as much as they just didn't even know what to ask and didn't seem curious. And then I just didn't feel like I needed to share that part of who I was. I don't think I spent a lot of time thinking about it. And I didn't really have the vocabulary. Now I look at, you know, the words that kids use and and even things like culture. I don't think I even use the word culture as a kid. And certainly not words like identity or diversity or all of the, the terminology we have now to sort of define ourselves. I wouldn't have even called myself a Pakistani American. I don't think that was the hyphenated identity wasn't a thing when I was growing up. So yeah, it was just different is what I felt. And did, were you a reader, a big reader when you yes. were growing up? What was your reading life like? It was very much imposed on me by my mother in a, in a good way, where she was a big proponent of reading. She would take us to the library, the public library, every few weeks with bags from the food store and we would fill them up and bring them home. And especially in the summertime, that was what we did. There were no summer camps or like, you know, yeah. activities. The library was your summer camp. Yeah, it really was. And, and I'm so grateful for that because I became a big reader. And I think for me, especially being this awkward, shy, self-conscious kid, to be able to immerse myself in books, of course, just for fun and escape and companionship, but also just to learn about other families and how they functioned apart from what I was seeing on TV. Do you remember some of the books that you were drawn to when you were younger? I loved Beverly Cleary and she's still my literary hero. You know, I read and reread the Ramona Quimby books and all of her stuff and probably checked those out the most when I was little. But I was a really wide reader. You know, I read everything from fantasy to little mysteries to, you know, I, I loved realistic fiction. And that was probably what I reread the most. But uh, I don't remember being as picky as I became as I grew older. Or And I never actually stopped reading a book. If I didn't like it midway, I sort of just plowed through it and finished it. because <laughs> I, I felt like yeah. I could not finish it. Well, you mentioned that you felt... Um or that you didn't notice until later that you were like not in this, all the books that you were reading. Do you remember like at the point at which you had a moment of recognition that you weren't seeing your own experience in the pages? Yeah. 
I do. It was college. I was at the University of Maryland as an undergrad and I was taking a lot of English classes and I remember taking a African-American literature class and I loved it. And then I took a Caribbean literature class. And at that time there was no South Asian literature class offered. But as I started reading some of these other books, I started looking and I found some South Asian women writers. And I remember being so you know, surprised and pleased in a good way to see things that were familiar to me, like, you know, a sari and a mango and, and the language and the culture, but it still wasn't mine. You know, I, I felt it was set in India for the most part. So that's when I became aware of the fact that, you know, I was searching and I read a whole bunch and I, I liked them to a certain extent, but I didn't love them until I read, I think it was The Namesake. That was the first time I felt seen. And it wasn't even so much that I felt, because it's about a Bangladeshi American multi-generational family. And I definitely identified with the child, the Gogol, the boy. But I what I really saw was my mother. And the opening chapters of the book are about the parents and the mother as a new bride coming to America, sitting in the little apartment, trying to find spices to cook with and the intense loneliness that she felt. And that just mirrored exactly what my mother used to describe her life like when she first came to the DC area and was living in an apartment in Silver Spring when my dad would go to work. It was that shock of recognition. I was like, I this is my mother. Like my mother is in a book. And that was so powerful to see. And that just made me so hungry for more. Joe scribbled away until the last page was filled when she signed her name with a flourish and threw down her pen, exclaiming, There, I've done my best. If this won't suit, I shall have to wait until I can do better. Lying back on the sofa, she read the manuscript carefully through, making dashes here and there and putting in many exclamation points, which looked like little balloons. Then she tied it up with a smart ribbon and sat a minute, looking at it with a sober, wistful expression, which plainly shown showed how earnest her work had been. Joe's desk up here was an old tin kitchen which hung against the wall. In it she kept her papers and a few books safely shut away from Scrabble, who likewise being of a literary turn was fond of making a circulating library of such books as were left in his way by eating the leaves. From this tin receptacle, Joe produced another manuscript and putting both in her pocket, crept quietly downstairs, leaving her friends to nibble her pens and taste her ink. She put on her hat and jacket as noiselessly as possible and going to the back entry window, got up up on top of the roof of a low porch, swung herself down to the grassy bank and took a turn roundabout way to the road. Once there, she composed herself, hailed a passing omnibus and rolled away to town, looking very merry and mysterious. Louisa May Alcott's Little Women was published in 1868, but to this day, the strong characters still feel just as palpable through the pages. In this passage, Jo is just about to submit her first article drafts to be published in the paper. In the following scene, she struggles with building up the nerve to go inside and hand over her work. It was the authenticity and rawness of the emotions and dialogue between Jo and Lori that inspired Henna to write her book, more to the story, which follows four young sisters in a Muslim-American family in Georgia. I just wanted to pull from my memories of what were the parts that spoke the most to me and the themes that I sort of wanted to infiltrate my book, but I didn't want it to feel like a straight retelling. I wanted a fresh narrative, but with the, all the things I loved, like the relationship between Joe and Lori, I wanted my friendship between my, my characters to feel as 
sincere and and believable and and then certain themes that maybe aren't significant to other fans of the book like for me Joe's anger was something I focus on despite being about a white Christian family in the late 1800s Little Women became a favorite read and a book where Henna saw her own identity unexpectedly reflected Martin Luther King Library invited me to do, to speak at an award ceremony for letters and literature, which is a, I think it's a national contest where students write to authors, living or dead, who had an impact on them. And so I was reading the finalists for the competition and they were really moving letters. And I was like, okay, what am I going to talk about during my, my comments? And so I thought about who I would have written to if I was in high school and what I would say. And I, I thought of Little Women, I thought of Louisa May Alcott and why this book resonated so deeply. And I realized that this is where I saw myself, probably more than anywhere else in the books I was reading, because even though it was written 150 years ago, the, a lot of what was in here felt very familiar and comforting to me. Things like the strict gender norms were recognizable to me, the respect for parents. Like that was something that always threw me as a teen, especially as a little kid, but even more as a teen was watching teen shows and seeing the way kids could sass their parents and, you know, talk back and like, I hate you. Like that was unheard of, you know, like I couldn't even talk back, yeah. you know, let alone say a bad word or, you know, you know, express dislike for my parents. Like <laughs> the respect for parents was so profound in this book. And, and then even some of like my parents had an arranged marriage and the marriage proposals and the expectations around dating and all of that was very familiar. And so it hit me later. I said, you know, for someone probably hungry for representation, this was as close as I got for a while. And then, well, I'm guessing you, I don't know, for you, like, did you identify with Joe? With, uh, Joe? Totally. I didn't realize that the book was not Joe's book. I mean, I knew it, that there were chapters told from the other sister's perspectives, but I just kind of got through those to get back to Joe's story. <laughs> they felt like similar stories to me. <laughs> so I was like, doesn't everyone identify with Joe? Like, are there really people who identify with Amy? <laughs> right. No, right. Okay. No. But there must be. Yeah. Yeah, of course. But interesting. Yeah. So there's like the, both like the recognition of the norms, but also like identify them as a young person, like questioning them. Absolutely. Yeah. And I love the fact that she pushed back and didn't feel, you know, felt like she was more. And, and the fact that she was a writer, I was a little writer too. And, and I actually wrote a family newspaper. Oh, like Joe. Yeah, and I didn't realize it until much later that, oh, I, that must be where I got the idea from. I don't remember getting the idea. I just remember doing it. Do you remember what your family newspaper was called? Oh, yes, the the Chronicles. No! <laughs> <laughs> do you have any, any uh, editions of it still? I do, yeah. Actually, there's a few lying around. <laughs> I, I, I took screenshots of them. We found them in a box. And I used to save my writings and they're on they're online notebook paper that's yellowed with age, written in my, my print. And, so good. And if you read it, other than the names, you know, there was nothing that made my family different from the March family or the Quimby family or any of the other families I was reading about. I had a section devoted to food, but I didn't talk about Pakistani dishes that my mother was cooking every day. I just spoke about food in a very general, like, oh, mom's having a dinner party and like she's cooking. And and I don't mention anything about being a Muslim, about our traditions. Although it was like this major part of your 
life. Yeah, yeah. I had an advice column where I used to, you know, people could write it. I wrote in and then I answered and I had letters to the editor. A lot of it was tattling, you know, yeah. on my siblings <laughs> and <laughs> and asking for things I wanted. Like the letter to the editor was like, the editor would really like, you know, a cuddly rabbit for her birthday. But it was, it was, that was really eye opening to me that, you know, I didn't include things that I write about now all the time related to being Pakistani American. I, people tell me I make them hungry in my books by, you know, yes. all the food I include. And I didn't talk about those things. And I really think I felt like I didn't have permission because I didn't see it written anywhere else. No one wanted to know about those things. Like the whole invisibility thing I mentioned earlier. Yeah. Even for yourself, even writing your own stories, your own work and stuff when you were younger, it's like you're just conditioned in a way. Totally. Did you have a desire to be a writer? Did you see that as like a future path for yourself? Or like at what point did you, were you able to realize you wanted to be a writer? If not, when you were little, was it like a dream? Yeah. So I was really lucky that I had some encouragement, you know, reading reading from my mom, of course. And then I was in this little, like a combined fifth, sixth classroom that was, I guess, like gifted and talented, they called it back then. And our, our language arts teacher was just so creative and she really pushed writing in a way that I don't know if they're really doing nowadays. And she also like made us perform. We did theater and like, it, it was really great. I do remember writing at home, like the, the, and those writings were private, you know, even though it was a family newspaper, nobody really read it. I don't, I don't remember sharing it even with my parents. <laughs> oh, really? sort of yeah. I, I don't think I ever, like I said, considered it as a profession. And I did think it was something I was okay at over time. In high school, I remember writing for, I, I tried out for my school newspaper and that actually made me think of journalism as a potential career um, in college. But somehow someone had told me, well, you know, if you major in journalism, you're going to be taught to write in a very specific way. So you should major in English instead or something else. So I ended up majoring in government and politics and then got very interested in working in the field of development and saving the world and whatever I thought I was going to be doing. So I I put the writing sort of side of my life on hold. But then when I started actually working, I found that everywhere I went, I would be the person doing the writing (laughs) and like like the the annual report or those, you know, whatever it was. Grant writer or whatever. wrestling, perhaps with imposter syndrome, it took Hannah years to recognize the potential of turning writing into a career. It actually wasn't until someone else acknowledged her capabilities that she first began to believe in herself. It wasn't really my own idea. I credit my friend from elementary school. Throughout school, you know, we did our projects together and she was in that same little program with me. And throughout high school, we were on the school paper together. I was home with my son and taking a break from international public health work. And Andrea reached out to me. She was working for Scholastic Book Clubs and she was doing the continuities department where you'd sign up for a book of the month and get a kit. And that's what she invited me to, to work on, actually to rewrite a couple of books. Well, one at a time, to rewrite a book in the Spy University series that she was spending a considerable amount of time rewriting. And then they eventually hired me to finish the series. So I did a few more and then went on to work for other series for them. And it was the only thing that made me think, like when we got our first fan letter, I thought, wow, like an actual kid is reading something that I wrote, even if you can't find it in a bookstore and you have to order through Scholastic (laughs) and have it mailed to your home. Like it's, it's there. 
But even with this clear indication that she did in fact have the potential to make a career out of her passion, Hannah still needed another push. This time, it came from wanting her son to see himself in stories. Again, it was my friend, really. Honestly, I had so little, so little faith in myself, I guess. But I had mentioned to Andrea just as a friend and as a mom that, oh, you know, there's still no books out there for for my kid. And I saw other good, nice, multicultural books out there, but nothing about Muslims or people like me. And she went to, and I, at the time, I just remember her saying, oh, I was at this librarian conference. And now I'm thinking, oh, it must've been ALA or TLA. Right. I don't even know what it was at then. But she came back and she's like, you know, they were calling for Arab American and Muslim American literature. You should try. So again, it was her encouragement that made me think, okay, what could I possibly do? And I thought about a story about Ramadan because my son was at that point in preschool and I saw how there was nothing to share with the class about what Ramadan was. I didn't want him to have to go through life saying my religious holiday <laughs> or, you know, my, my special month of the year. Right. <laughs> so that really was it that I thought, okay, how could I write something about Ramadan that's not an Islamic book, which, you know, I had a handful of those for him, which were horrid, like really like didactic and like, you know, written by Muslims about Islam, but nothing for the mainstream. And also just something I, I very much thought, school library. Like I want my kid to go into the school library and see their book. To like see this when it's the time to like see, you know what I mean? To have that, like, I mean, anytime, but especially when it's like see yourself recognized. Exactly. At that time I thought, okay, well that's fun. You know, even when I managed to sell that and that came out, I didn't really consider it a career. It was a side gig, you know, like a side hustle. And I was still working in in international public health. And every time I I don't think I had any faith in the industry to, you know, embrace me as an author or to, you know, want more from me. So every time it felt like beating down the door And, and even the Ramadan book, it was, okay, here's a book about Ramadan, but how do I make it appealing to educators? And how do I add value? Because a story about Ramadan alone is not enough. So here's a story about a girl watching the moon change shape over the course of the month, and we're gonna, I'm going to build a lunar phase. Science and, time. Yeah. And then, spoiler to everyone out there, she <laughs> gets the telescope at the end. And I was like, okay, here, like, here's a STEM angle yeah. here. And, you know, and I was really trying, you know, to th- whatever I could to make it as just accessible and, and friendly to people. I just didn't know if I'd ever get the chance again. Eventually, Henna realized that she didn't need to cushion stories about Muslim families to make them palatable to non-Muslim readers. She could just write about children, their worries, their joys, their lives, and that was valid enough. But it took time for her to truly believe it. Honestly, it was very gradual, like especially those early years. Like Night of the Moon came out in 2008, so that means I sold it like in 2006. So this was, you know, well before we need diverse books or really the, you know, the recognition that there was this, you know, gaping hole in the children's literature, like leaving out so many voices. So people were starting to think about it, I'm sure, but it wasn't, you know, this major push yet. For me, it was really like one by one sort of recognizing what I wanted to see exist. And so it started with the Ramadan book and then the concept booked. And then I was like, okay, what else do I see? And I, I thought about you know, the, the stories I love to read as a kid. And like so many writers, you know, write the book that you wish you had as a kid. And I think that's where Amina's voice was born. Um, I wanted to write a slice of life story featuring a Pakistani American 
family. And, and a lot of it was inspired by, you know, my friendship with my friend in elementary school and the whole idea of wrestling with identity, but not it, that not being an issue. You know, I didn't want it to be in any way her feeling. And I guess this is how writers, you know, write who they wish they were, you know, in a way like she's, she didn't struggle with her identity the way I did as a kid. Her problem is confidence and, you know, wanting to sing and and friendship struggles maybe were the closest things she, she and I shared as, you know, people. And then I worked in the idea of uh, the mosque vandalism because I saw that as a, you know, unfortunate situation that not only Muslims, but other like Jewish communities and others were facing. And that had been a part of my childhood growing up. I, I live in a predominantly Jewish area, or I shouldn't say predominantly, but a heavily Jewish area. And there's many synagogues, like five five or six within a few mile radius of my home. So sadly, when I was growing up, I would hear about synagogues being attacked from time to time. And I remember the, the impact on the community and the heartbreak that would cause and everyone rallying around to go paint over the graffiti or whatever it was. And and I had heard about things like that happening in mosques, but I wanted that connection to for my character to have this connection to the mosque and for it to be this special, meaningful place for her, along with it being, you know, a place of boredom and like forced religious education and all that right. stuff. Too. All of that, yeah. um, to keep it real. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, for that idea of like, what does it mean to have your, you know, something so special to you as a community be attacked in that way? Um, but it wasn't. The central it's supposed to be an issue for right. and yeah it's not you know the beginning of the book it's it's something that happens and i remember when when the book was marketed they sort of highlighted that as sort of this big turning point moment for her or this that being the big challenge in her life and and i was like well no not really it's really a story about personal growth and friendship and finding yourself and finding confidence but you know that that was my motivation for putting that in there was sort of well one upping the stakes and just you know making it in my mind, I thought, knowing as a Muslim and living in a post 9-11 world, you know, the questions people had and even some of the suspicions people had around mosques and mosque communities. And that was part of my motivation, too, was sort of taking people into a mosque and showing them well, what really happens there. And it's it's a fundraisers and it's whiny children and it's, you know, congregational prayer and things that are very, very familiar. So that was important to me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you've written so many stories now or like Muslim kids are just existing, playing basketball, hanging out with friends, that kind of thing. So maybe this is a good time to talk about your upcoming middle grade novel, Drawing Dina. And that character is actually navigating a lot of stress and anxiety that she's having trouble putting her finger on. So maybe we could talk about some of your inspirations for that book. Yeah. So it was a combination of things. It was my own anxiety to a certain extent. Um, the story begins with Dina at the dentist because she's clenching and she she's cracked yeah. a tooth, Aww. which yes. I did in real life really? and I wear an egg guard now. So that was completely coming from my own experience. And then a family member who was dealing with anxiety very much in the way that I described Dina's experience, where it was like, you know, very stomach centric and, and nobody understood what it was. And then slowly coming to realize that it was anxiety at play. And I feel like for so many kids, especially, that is the way it manifests is in the gut. You may not think that they have a reason to feel the way they feel. And I think as adults sometimes, and especially in in my communities, and I know many immigrant communities, like mental health stuff can sort of, you know, it's not that it doesn't matter, but it's sort of like, oh, you'll be fine. And I felt like 
you know, it was something that I wanted to, to write about because I've seen it, you know, not only in my own family, but other families where it takes a while to come around and recognize it for what it is and then decide what to do about it. And sometimes getting outside support can be really met with resistance. What are you hoping that readers are going to take away from that story or also more broadly from your stories in general? I think for me, you know, it is this balance between in the books that I write where I have, you know, the books very specific about a specific topic, whether it's Ramadan or the hijab or my new picture book is about going to Friday prayers. So those are still, you know, what I would put in the educational category. And so, you know, you're learning about Islam or Muslim traditions. But then on the flip side, I just really wanted stories for kids to be able to see themselves and not have them be about wrestling with your identity or who you are as a Muslim or about being bullied or, you know, any of that, but just getting to be a kid, because that's what I loved so much as a reader when I was reading the Ramona Quimby books or Judy Bloom books, which is stories about kids grappling with life and, you know, kid challenges, whatever they are, or kid passions. And and that's what I loved reading. And so for me, you know, Amina's Voice was the first novel I wrote, but then when I wrote the Zaid series, I was like, I, I just want to write about a kid who loves basketball and who's this scrawny underdog with whose stomach hurts a lot. And he was based on my my younger son. And I wanted to write his extended family and all the characters in that. And so even though it's, you know, sports heavy, there's still a lot of friendship and family and community and just, you know, a big fat Pakistani wedding that happens and you know, all the things that make our culture fun and interesting and all the things I left out of my family newspaper as a kid, I like cram into my books because it is the flavor and the the color and the the spice that we add to life. And, and that's where, I don't know, the idea of having a book like More to the Story, you know, that's like in some ways this book that I adored so much or the Zara series, which is really my tribute maybe to Ramona Quimby. It's very neighborhood focused and play focused and antic filled. And and I just want the joy of reading. You know, of course there's like light lessons or whatever you want to call it, light realizations and character growth, but it's not heavy or, you know, about overcoming and they're not pain stories because I feel like life is hard. Yeah. <laughs> and I want kids to just... They're already anxious about many things, right? So yeah, and also, like, you know, I want kids to feel proud when their class is reading a book about a character like them. You know, it's not necessarily a book about struggle or trauma. It's about wanting to be the best kid on a basketball team or wanting to be the ruler of the neighborhood or, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you obviously connect with kids in this really big way. Actually, my son, Cassius, he dressed up like Zade from your book, um, Power Forward for his third grade book of ween party. That is amazing. Oh my gosh. And it was just adorable. He loved that care. He loved that series, by the way. Um, do you have encounters with your other young fans that have really stayed with you? Oh my gosh, yeah. It's like when I was in Seattle for um they had put Power Forward, the first book of the Zaid Salim series. It was not not quite a battle of the books, but it was like some special reading program that the Seattle Public Library had done. And I was out there for school visits and I went and there was this little boy. He just, you know, had to get my attention while I was like walking up to give my presentation. He said, I just love this book so much. I love this book so much. It made me want to cry. And I thought, oh my goodness, that's like the best compliment I've ever gotten in my life. <laughs> because really like some of the, the ones that stick out the most are the kids from different backgrounds who identify so strongly. And the letters I get from people like 
these grandparents who talked about more to the story and and how their daughter their granddaughter was going through leukemia and how like how helpful they found the book like the sisters found the book so comforting and you know those types of things where you're just like there's these universal truths like you said like we specific details but universal feelings and universal experiences that you know people hopefully can relate to and and that's what I go for in all of my books that common humanity (laughs) you know hopefully anybody can get to know a Pakistani American family maybe you know witness some Muslim traditions and but yet feel included too the way I did in all the books I read as a kid and didn't wonder where am I it's like no you're you're there you're with this family and you're glad to be there and you're you wish you were one of those kids in that room or you know on that street that's I remember that feeling so strongly I wish I was one of the gang yeah like you want to be up there doing the plays with the March sisters exactly exactly and that to me builds you know that gets us connected right and that's where you you think about those characters later in life and that stays with you I hope yeah I hope I hope too and I think that bit about common humanity feels so crucial right now in this moment you know at the state of our world as it is It's just so important for kids to see and understand and embrace other cultures, you know? Absolutely. And that's why in my books, too, I like to include friendships. And in the Zara series, which is very much I mentioned based on my neighborhood, you know, my dearest friends who grew up with me across the street, a Jewish family, and, you know, we grew up in each other's homes. We participated in each other's traditions. You know, I would go over their house and eat matzah crackers and, like, you know, <laughs> do, like, the, like, it was just part of my life. Our food's and, not our strong suit to me. Besides bagels, <laughs> you know, like, what else? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I loved it, actually. They were like, you like this? I'm like, yes, I want matzah. <laughs> but we understood each other, and that came through play and from being in each other's homes and and that was really, really fun for me to write into the Zara series was this interfaith friendship because that was my reality. And it's not like, you know, deliberate diversity or trying to, you know, send a message. That was my experience. And it just brings me joy to highlight that. Okay, Hannah, I was talking to one of my best friends, Halla, about having you on the show. And she was really excited because her twin boys love your Curious George book. And I promised her I would let them ask a question. So this is from her son, Iyad. And for the record, Zidane also had a question about why you chose to write a book about Ramadan, but you sort of already answered that one. So I'm going to play Iyad for you. Okay, here he is. My name is Iyad, and I have a question for you. My question is, how did you figure out Curious George would be the Muslim character in in the book? Oh, I love that. Oh, my gosh. So cute. Well, the funny thing is, I remember when, so the the publishers, you know, HMH, who put out new Curious George books, they actually approached me and said, you know, we have this series where Curious George celebrates other holidays like Christmas and Hanukkah and St. Patrick's Day and Halloween and and Parade Day. And and they're like, we think it's high time he celebrate Ramadan. What do you think? Would you like to write this? And I was like, Yes. But then I asked them, I was like, well, so how does this work exactly? Like, is Curious George Muslim? Is the man with the yellow hat Muslim? Right. Like, what, what exactly are we doing here? Why is and they it? said, well, yeah, I was like, I don't know. Um, and they said, well, how about he's 
celebrating Ramadan with his Muslim friends. I was like, ah, got it. Okay, that totally works. It was super fun to write and have, you know, this icon, the Curious George, celebrate this meaningful time. And it's been so well received by the Muslim community. Yeah, and the Muslim community and beyond, honestly. And like speaking of beyond, I think as a writer, you've obviously really grown into embracing more broadly your South Asian heritage. And I wonder in that vein, if you can tell me about your upcoming anthology. Yeah. So I'm very excited about The Doors Open, which is an anthology of stories written by South Asian American middle grade writers and a mix of writers from different parts of South Asia, from India and Pakistan, and people of different ethnic and religious backgrounds. So we've got Hindu, Muslim, Sikh, Jewish, Christian, and it's just really fun that what unites us all is our culture as South Asians. And it's so strong. And I feel like as a Pakistani American Muslim growing up in the U.S., when my parents moved here initially, they didn't know there weren't too many other Pakistani families. And I remember one of my dad's first friends who he met, he actually took the QE2, the Queen Elizabeth II ship from England to America for fun. And he could have flown, but he went on the ship and he met a Hindu man who became one of his closest lifelong friends. And it didn't matter that they, you know, came from rival countries or opposing religions the way it's presented over there, but they just had this instant bond and it was so sweet growing up with them. And that's what I kind of wanted to capture in the book was that we're all Desi, which is what we call ourselves. And we're all from the Des, and we all share, you know, a lot of commonalities. I'm very excited. When is that coming out? So that'll be out April 23rd. And we've got some amazing Newberry honor winners. We've got Rajni LaRocca, Saintani Desgupta, Malik Pancholi, Matali Perkins, Aisha Sayed, Reem Faruqi, like a whole bunch of like really, really talented authors. Taking inspiration from the doors open, Hannah's reading challenge, Read Daisy, is all about celebrating South Asian American writers. So the anthology has so many writers who I really adore, which is why I picked them. They're all writers whose works I read and, and really connected with. Vera Haranandi, who wrote The Night Diary, which is one of like my favorite books, opens up the anthology, which I'm so proud to have her be a part of it. And I just think these writers have written books about being a Desi American, like my books. Um, Malik's book, The Best At It, is hilarious and just really fun. And um, Saitani's got, you know, fantasy series with Indian mythology. Aisha's got both books set in Pakistan and in the US. Same thing with Matali. So it's just like a really nice mix of books where you get to see different aspects of of South Asian identity and history and how kids are experiencing life in America today. So, and then there's a mix of wonderful picture books by these authors too. So all reading for all ages. You can find Henna's challenge and all of our past challenges from authors such as Daniel Nairi, Kate Camillo, Jacqueline Woodson, and even recent National Book Award winner, congratulations, Dan Santat at thereadingculturepod.com. And today's Beanstack featured librarian is Allie Buffington. She is a library media specialist at Holly Navari Intermediate School in Santa Rosa County, Florida. Allie tells us about the importance of making the library a space that kids want to come back to. 
I try to remember my physical presence, the way that I portray myself and the library space is going to stick with them for a very long time. And that's going to be directly correlated to how they remember their experience with books. I feel like my purpose in life, my purpose in this library is to try and get those fifth graders to walk out my door at the end of the year and want to walk in the new doors of the new school's library. Because we know middle through high is that critical point where we kind of start to lose the interest in the reading. And so I told a kid the other day, I'm not super strict on the library rules, right? Like the shh, be quiet. And one of my kids the other day was like, oh, I didn't bring any of my four books back. And I was like, well, I guess you get a fifth one today. I, I tell them I'm a librarian for the people and not for the books. I'm here for you guys. This has been The Reading Culture and you've been listening to our conversation with Henna Khan. Again, I'm your host, Jordan Lloyd Bookie. And currently I'm reading The Heaven and Earth Grocery Store by James McBride and The Blackwoods by Brandy Colbert. If you enjoyed today's episode, please show some love and give us a five-star review. It just takes a second and it really helps. To learn more about how you can help grow your community's reading culture, you can check out all of our resources at beanstack.com. And remember to sign up for our newsletter at thereadingculturepod.com forward slash newsletter for special offers and insights. This episode was produced by Jackie Lamport and Lower Street Media and script edited by Josiah Lamberto Egan. Thanks for joining and keep reading. Keep reading.